0: Welcome, everyone. I'm very happy today to uh, talk to my friend, Aaron Wren. Aaron Wren is a culture critic who has written for the um, Wall Street Journal, First Things and the American Mind, among others. Uh, he His new book, um, Life in the Negative World, is available now to order. Uh, and we're very happy to uh, have him here. Thank you so much for talking to us, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. And oh, Also, you can uh, see his work uh, and uh, contact him at dot com. We'll also, of course, um, have that later to um, uh, for you to, to look at in the show notes. Um, so I guess, first of all, I read your book, really enjoyed your book. It's a really good book, really uh, excited to go through it. I think, first, for our listeners, the question is, what is the negative world, and why do you believe that we're in it?
1: Yes, well back in 2014 I detected that we were in a tipping point in the culture in which uh we were going to be moving from a place in which Christianity sort of occupied this neutral ground as a sort of lifestyle choice among many into one where Christianity was going to be explicitly disfavored by elite society and that was going to be a big challenge for the Church. I actually had this epiphany when I was watching a series of seven short films put out by the Acton Institute called For the Life of the World. One of my friends had been involved in creating it. It's a really great film series. I actually saw it at King's College, uh, if you may recall. uh, As did I. Yes, I was there. I saw
0: saw the premiere there, yeah.
1: When I first saw it, I said to myself, This film is awesome, it's really well done, but this is the film for five years ago. Mm -hmm. This is the film that's speaking to the world that's going away and we're gonna have a new world. And the types of questions it was seeking to answer were really a little bit gonna be obsolete in that future. So I went home and I made a whole list of bullet points of what I thought about it and sketched out this model of what I thought was happening in the world. And then I wrote it up in my newsletter in 2017, and it got a lot of attention in 2017 when I first wrote it. And then I turned it into, uh, First Things asked me to essentially update it and put it in their magazine. And it was in the February 22 issue, this article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism, which might be the most talked about article in the history of First Things magazine. It was certainly the most read article of the year in the print edition. And it laid out this three worlds framework that I had developed. And what I said, well, look, if you you go back to the 1950s, we sort of had a, we didn't have a state church or anything like that, but we sort of had a softly institutionalized generic Protestantism in America. So this is the decade that we added, in God we trust our money, we put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, we had prayer in the public schools. Uh, There's a famous photo of the New York skyline, with the lights and skyscrapers lit up as crosses for Easter. That picture was taken in the 1950s, which sort of shows uh, the normativity of the culture. We still had what they called the Protestant establishment in America, and it was the high water market church attendance in the in the country. Half of all adults attended church every Sunday. But then in the 1960s, we Christianity started to go into decline in America, decline in terms of church attendance, decline in terms of personal adherence, declines in terms of the way that its moral system began to get called into question. And it's still declining. (laughs) And this period of decline, the 60-year period of decline from 1964 to the present, I divide into three phases or worlds, what I call the positive, the neutral, the negative worlds. The positive world lasts from around 1964 to 1994. And in the positive world, this is a period of decline for Christianity. I want to be clear about that. Things are not going well for Christianity. Nevertheless, Christianity is still basically viewed positively in elite society. To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. And the norms, moral norms of Christianity are still basically normative in society. And if you violate them, you could get into trouble. Around 1994, we hit a tipping point and entered again what I call the neutral world which lasted from 94 to 2014, in which Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's really seen negatively yet either. It's just sort of like one more thing you can be. We might have a conversation like this, and I'd say, I'm a Christian. You'd say, great, I'm a vegan. Let's talk. (laughs) Let's have a conversation. But then in 2014, we had a second tipping point, in there, what I call the negative world, where for the first time in the 400-year history of America, And of official elite culture now views Christianity negatively. To be known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job at Goldman Sachs or Google. Quite the opposite, in fact. And Christian moral norms are now not only expressly repudiated, but they're sort of viewed as the premier threat to the new public moral order, which we see over in some of the moral panic around things like Christian nationalism. Uh, for example and so the the negative world is this post two thousand fourteen America in which the relationship between society at large and Christianity experienced a fundamental break and put the church into an unprecedented uncomfortable situation that is struggling to figure out how to adapt to
0: yeah so it's really interesting there's a bunch there that's really interesting and what I think is fascinating is that there's there's two aspects to what you're talking about. One is uncontroversial fairly, and the other is rather controversial and you've gotten pushback about. The mm-hmm. first is, I think, you know, we everyone knows that the church numbers are declining. Like people are talking about, you know, we're entering a post-Christian society. They talk about that all the time. You know, the rise of the nuns is a big uh, conversation topic among Christians and non-Christians, where it talks about you know, the number of people who, um. Uh, say that they they don't have any affiliation to organize any organized religion is rising, and of course the numbers of people who uh, claim to be Christians and who are going to church are is declining rapidly. Um, there was a one Pew study that was saying that if Christians that if something doesn't reverse course, you know Christianity will may disappear essentially in uh, have face irreversible decline was the was the phrase. Um, and so everybody's sort of talking about, well, what do we do about that? What do we look about that? I just, I uh, reviewed a book for Religion Unplugged uh, last year, you know, called The Great Deturching that's talking about that very phenomenon. Um, what is more controversial, of course, is sort of the, first of all, the way that you are dividing up, you know, um, mm-hmm. the negative and the neutral and positive worlds. I don't think most people disagree that there was at one time, like you said, you know, a an establishment of like Christianity being the norm in society and we don't live in that world anymore, like you pointed out, you know, you wouldn't see a cross on the, you know, uh, in in the New York skyline anymore Mm -hmm. in that same way. Uh, You would see, you might see a pride symbol now in in that way. And so obviously there's something that's changed in that regard, but there are, you know, people who kind of have pushed back and say like, well, have things gotten that different exactly? For example, someone like uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, the late Dr. Timothy Keller, uh, in response, I mean, it's he didn't call you out directly, but it was pretty clear he was responding to your article uh, in First Things because, you know, he he essentially made the note that is that anybody I'm paraphrasing, obviously, anyone who um, saw us and our attempts to put a church into New York City um, on the ground when we were trying to do that would not have described the environment that we were in in any way as neutral, you know. Um, and so. But so a lot of the the conversation has been like, have we really entered a new era that's that different from um, that was in the 90s to the degree that, um, you know, uh, that it makes a concrete difference to us? So what are the, some of the aspects of it that um, you would say definitively you can say, no, the era, you know, of the 90s to the 2000s um, is completely different or at least, you know, uh, Uh, different enough that we can talk about it as different to what Mm -hmm. we're in today?
1: Yeah, what I would say is, first off, I'm not wedded to this framework as being the only way to understand the world. So I come from a consulting background. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the fact that I'm a consultant in this framework. And, you know, we give people tools Mm -hmm. to help understand the world and make decisions in the world. And frameworks are always simplifications. For example, um, we tend to divide uh, history into three periods, classical, medieval, and modern, and that obscures a lot. However, it's very useful in many cases, which is why we keep coming back to it. And so I don't pretend that this kind of thing that I laid out covers every nuance or anything of that nature. And, you know, you could have multiple ways of slicing up or dividing uh these periods, depending on what you're looking at. So if you look at a guy like Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, he wrote a book called The Secular Age where he took a big pan back and he told essentially a five or 700 year story of secularization. And so I'm zoomed in on essentially post-war America. So I'm looking at things a bit more granularly there. So um, if people find that there's a better way that works for them to make sense of this world, I'm all in favor of it. So I would not claim that this is the one true understanding. It's a tool. It's a heuristic. It's not like, you know, a scientific law or a theological claim. It's it's more practical. And so I, I would say that. So I'm not, if people say this doesn't resonate with me, here's how I see it. Great. <laughs> I mean, if, if that helps you navigate the world, please do it. Now, I would say, right, if we all agree that Christianity was positive in the past, and it's sort of like post-positive, at least today, let's call it that, then there must have been at least some moment in time when it was neutral, (laughs) So that thing. Uh, So I do think, if if you look, it's interesting to see, um, I I lay out, and maybe we can talk about this later, maybe not, we don't have to. In addition to the three worlds, I sort of lay out three different evangelical strategies and kind of the three different groups, one of whom was the culture war group like we all understand the religious right. The other was the seeker sensitivity movement, which I think of as the non-denominational suburban megachurch, basically. And there's what I call the cultural engagement group, which was sort of Keller-esque urban church, if you will. And here's how those three groups have reacted to my stuff so far. The culture war people didn't read it. (laughs) They they don't (laughs) read First Things Magazine. I got virtually no engagement at all to date from the culture war people. The seeker sensitivity people have had the best reactions. Ooh. Some some pastor in flyover country America, where I, I live in Indianapolis now, flyover country America, suburban Indianapolis, they see it and they're like, wow, this really helps me understand. I saw this stuff going on, you gave me a language. The people who disliked it the most were the cultural engagers. And I can understand why they think that, because these are people, Who viewed themselves as sort of being the tip of the spear culturally, in terms of being on kind of the vanguard of like navigating what's going on in the world, and I think if you look at this model that says their ministry was a product of the neutral world and now we're in a negative world, they're going to perceive that as saying we're no longer the tip of the spear. Somebody else is going to be the tip of the spear. So it's somewhat I can see why they they wouldn't like it. Now what I would I would say is. You know, when Keller Keller started Redeemer in 1989, and I do think either that early period of Redeemer between like 89 and 94, pre-Giuliani, New York, when it was a war zone, was kind of, you know, maybe not as a great of environment to be doing anything. <laughs> and I think people don't appreciate how courageous he was in going to 1989 New York with three kids. Uh, people would thought he was nuts. And I mean, you, you can't go to New York today. And you know, this is when, for example, people go to sha- we go to Shakespeare in the park and they would literally sprint home or sprint to the subway to avoid getting mugged. Okay, <laughs> it, it was like, anyway. then when Giuliani came on, you know, New York sort of came back. And there was this sort of, I think there was this era in which a different kind of uh, evangelist or pastor like Keller could get a very positive hearing. And, you know, he he got invited to give a talk at Google, one of their Google talks. He got the, you know, very f- nice sit-downs with Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. He sort of was viewed as a respectable person for many years by the elite. And dare I say it, much of his street cred in evangelicalism Came from the fact that he seemed to have cracked the code on being accepted in New York, and but you know, and so maybe at the beginning he had some experiences that that I don't know as much about. Frankly, we didn't hear about the negatives, you know, to the extent that they experienced them during much of that ministry. But towards the end the end of his ministry, he started he did start encountering mm-hmm. troubles, and most notably at Princeton Seminary, they were going to give him their Abraham Tiper Award. Uh, Princeton Seminary is the flagship seminary of the PCUSA, which is the mainline Presbyterian denomination. I would say it's probably known as one of the more conservative PCUSA uh, seminaries. Um, a number of evangelical pastors have gone to it, um, and he got attacked by their students for like not ordaining women and other stuff, and they actually rescinded his award. They didn't give him the award. He did get to give a talk there but I think the fact that even he got canceled in 2017, and I don't think that would have happened in 2007. And so I think something sort of did change um, a little bit. I think there was a, you know, this neutral period really sort of did exist. And of course- you know the future is uh, is uh, is here. It's just not evenly distributed, as people say. Hmm. You know, depending on where you are in the country, it might still be positive towards Christianity. Sure. Like where I grew up in Southern Indiana, uh, and and New York City certainly had has had something of an evolution. But I do think there was there was this sort of period post Cold War, more multicultural America. Uh, you know, keep in mind, you know, prior to the 1990s. It was still basically a black and white country, certainly in public perception. Yes, we were talking about you know illegal immigration in the eighties and Reagan. There was some of that, but reality is, you know, you go look at a film like um, The Blues Brothers, its portrayal of Chicago as an almost entirely black and white city, or um, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is sort of the same thing. Well, now it's sort of multicultural. There's a lot more things going on, and. It it was, you know, it it was just sort of a different America. um, I think, in in terms of it, in terms of that, and so it's not all about religion. But I do think the sort of post Cold War to Obama second term America was a unique culture in America, and it wasn't like three TV networks where everybody watched Johnny Carson anymore. Fragmented common culture. There's a lot going on in America in that time period, and I do think it's fair to say there was a neutral world even though at some level, you know, that's not to say there weren't people like getting attacked for being Christian or, you know, there weren't bad things happening. There were, there are always bad things happening, but I, 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 you know, I would, uh, I I have um, not heard anything compelling in terms of critiques that would make me change my thesis in terms of how I see it. Now, again, if other people see it differently, I'm all in favor of them going with what works for them.
0: Sure. No, so I, I think you know you make a certain compelling case in the book of of certain changes that have happened that people can see kind of concrete examples of. Um, you know, you talk about the fact that you know uh, one of the one of the best is that Barack Obama said, you know, I'm you know uh, not in favor of gay marriage. You know, prior to you know, um, you know, prior to gay marriage being um, enshrined as law of the land, he said, no, I'm in favor of marriage as a man and a woman. And then, of course, afterwards, he said, you know, this is great, you know, this is great. And then, you know, and then, you know, Donald Trump said, this is great, you know, so there's definitely aspect of like, you couldn't really imagine somebody, you know, a president, you know, today, you know, in the same way, being openly like that saying, you know, in favor of being a man and woman in that quite same way. And certainly, the acceptance of the fact that he, in a sense, even though you point out that he really sort of already did approve of gay marriage, but he felt like he had to right. say that he did not, you know, shows that there was a shift. And there's also a book um, called From uh, Tolerance to Equality that pointed out that in the New York Times, prior to the um, uh, Supreme Court gay marriage ruling, the primary word used in like New York Times editorials was the word tolerance. And then once um, it got, gay marriage got approved, then the um, then the primary word used was equality. So there certainly does seem to be have been a shift of people who have who are Christians who have had traditionally sort of conservative um, Christian ideas of morality based around sex or based around, you know other things. Um, there was a room in that time period, for there to be disagreement about it and people would just sort of say, well, that person is a, you know, is a Christian. So that's what they think It's like, okay, they're going to, you know, you know, you could be somebody who's pro-life and oh, still like, you know, get, you know, to have um, a space at the table, so to speak, at least that's your thesis. And then there were
1: even pro-life Democrats, which are essentially extinct now. I think that one guy who's governor of Louisiana was a pro-life Democrat. You know, I think Michael Ware uh who is like you know faith advisor to obama as a I think he's a pro-life evangelical yeah. Democrat. But they're just, I mean, like it's become essentially, you know, you could certainly, it's easier to be pro abortion as a Republican than it is to be anti-abortion and be a Democrat. It's essentially well, impossible now.
0: So this is an interesting question before we move on, because I want to talk about your your three mo- sort of three strategies. Um, because that is really kind of, you know, uh, that if historic, I want to dive into that a bit more and then talk about how that's changed in the, according to your thesis in the negative world. Um, but I do want to talk about this aspect, which is that, you know, another pushback that sort of come at you from the other direction. This is one that I can definitely have like friends who kind of fall into this category, um, who say that it's not about being Christian. It's about being conservative. You know, because I have you know friends who are on the Christian left, and they say like, "Look, I have no trouble navigating this world. I'm not really, you know, I've never, I mean, I've had to, I've never felt discriminated against or treated badly because I was a Christian." And you know, it's you know obviously because they're a Christian progressive, and really kind of the issue. So it does seem like in many ways the issue is not being a Christian, so to speak. It's being a Christian that holds to you know more what would be considered today more conservative Christian positions on things so is does that add a nuance mm-hmm. to what you're saying or how would you respond to that
1: it does in fact I even uh that's one of the things I added to the book where I say look merely identifying mm-hmm. as a Christian definitely paints you suspicious as, as being suspicious but um you know as long as you don't say anything that conflicts with the new, uh, modern Christian morality. As long as you signal that you uh, adhere to that, you're probably not going to get in trouble. Now, it's certainly not going to help you. You know, mm. being a progressive Christian isn't going to help you, but it will it will get keep you from getting canceled, if you will. So, if you say, you know, I'm an episc. If somebody just says I'm an Episcopalian, mm. they're probably not going to get in trouble. But the key is, the label itself may not get you, but the contents of your Christianity cannot conflict in any way with culture and we in fact see that people are very careful not to do that so there's a new book out called the kingdom and the power and the glory mm-hmm. uh evangelicals in the age of extremism i think is a subtitle by tim alberta who's an uh, an atlantic staff writer he's a he says he's an evangelical he is the son of a an evangelical pastor from michigan and I read his book and he directly, like, quotes scripture. He, like, is giving Greek word studies. He's talking about Christian theology and what it means in terms of, like you know, submitting to authorities and loving the stranger and all that. But when he talks about, say, abortion, he does not use that language. When he talks about abortion, uh, he tends to use language that portrays abortion Merely is something the people he criticizes, that he's quoting believe is wrong. So he will say something like, if abortion is murder, as this person says, then, et cetera. And you know, I, I'm actually, uh, I, i'm in the I'm in the process here of re- rereading his book to confirm, it, you know, the more details on this point, but it's like I read it, and I did not note at any point in the book. That he said that Christian doctrine in any way fundamentally conflicts with any flashpoint issue in secular culture, or that he personally held any belief hmm. that conflicts with it. So he's making clear, hey, I, you know, my Christianity doesn't cause you any trouble. And oh, by the way, I'm playing the role of bashing these other people over here that you hate. So sort of like, you know, you can leave me alone. These aren't a the droids you're looking for. Sure. Right. And so um you know, again, I don't. I don't expect someone to lead with uh, all the things they think are going to get them hate by any means. Sure, but I mean, this is this is to me, this is the form of pressure that's very different. And what makes the negative world so different from persecution? So, um, you know, a lot, some people will say, you know, well, Christian Christians are being persecuted in America. That's not true. I don't agree with that. You know, um, I I was really honored to get to know a little bit. Uh, pastor Andrew Brunson, who was an evangelical Presbyterian church, evangelical pastor, missionary in Turkey. And he was the guy in the Trump administration who was unjustly imprisoned as an as a spy for two years in Turkey. That guy experienced persecution. People in China are experiencing persecution. North Korea experienced persecution. People in America aren't suffering persecution. However, there are today, you know, different forms of more subtle social pressure uh, that are nevertheless being applied in new ways. And one of them is basically this social pressure that says, you can be a Christian if your theology is compliant with secular moral systems and ideologies. And as long as you're willing to essentially affirm that, or at least never Disaffirm it, (laughs) uh, and you don't cause us any trouble politically. You know, you can be left alone, and so that's why there's. That's why I feel so many of these groups. We see massive, massive, massive shifts in the rhetoric of many of these conservative evangelicals have changed how they talk about issues like abortion. Instead of saying, you know, pro life is always just basically meant anti abortion. Well, now pro life means wanting to let refugees cross the border. You know, it's like. And it's all these, you know, they they always try to like square the circle. Now, here's what we mean by that. We don't really, it's holistically pro life. So, you know, yes. or anti diabetic. So, and so you start to see that fundamentally the contents of Christian faith are being reshaped by this social pressure uh, in ways that we've not experienced in the past. And so that's why this era, I think, represents an, an era where compromise. Is very easy and socially acceptable. If you're if you're a member of a church in New York City, what you are hoping this pastor will give you, right, is a good, plausibly justifiable theology that says you don't have to do anything to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Basically, I mean, isn't that what I would love to hear? That I mean, I would personally put myself in that category. I would love people to tell me, "Hey." Aaron, Let me explain to you why you don't have to do anything to get yourself in trouble. To me, that was the great appeal of James Davison Hunter's faithful presence idea from his Mm -hmm. book to change the world. Faithful presence, you don't have to do any of that gauche culture warning stuff. In fact, you're smarter than those people. They're dumb. They don't know how to change culture. You know how to change culture. You change culture by succeeding in elite institutions and changing them by being salt and light from the inside out. So you can see how there's great appeal and there's nothing you know objectively wrong in terms of theology with faithful presence but it's an example of how these things are appealing because they 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 give people the messages they want to hear
0: okay yes yeah. so now i want to talk more uh, in detail about your ideas of the three strategies because this is where kind of the rubber hits the road because i think again even though there's pushback on you know you know, uh, positive world, neutral world, negative world, like you said, most people are like, yeah, Christianity was much more, you know, was much more the monoculture, you know, at one time, Protestant Christianity, certainly, you know, at one time, and it's less so now, much less so now. And in fact, people would say that, yeah, it's, it's being a Christian is okay. As long as it doesn't, you know, get in the way of X, Y, or Z beliefs. I think most people would kind of see like that's, you know, otherwise it's kind of, Christians have a bad reputation. And the, the funny thing is most people would say that most people would agree with Christianity and Christians have a bad reputation. They might disagree on whether or not Christians deserve that. But most right. people are kind of like, no, Christianity has a branding problem at today at the very right. least. And so we've, we've, we're we on that spectrum. Wherever you want to divide the line on that spectrum may be different, but that spectrum has has gone. And so we're in a world now where Christianity, being, being a Christian gives you a, a sort of automatic you have to you have to explain why you shouldn't be looked upon badly a little bit in that in that kind of environment. Right. So, but where rubber kind of gets the road, and I think again you talked about the you talked about the culture um, warriors, the secret sensitive, and the cultural engagement strategies, which you describe as strategies, or if people don't want to use the word strategies because that sounds kind of Machiavellian and insincere, but like dispositions towards um, dealing with people who are not Christians or don't right. share your beliefs. Yeah. Um, you, what is, uh, so you described, those are three ways that have been going about that. And so what are those three? And why is it that the cultural engagers have been the ones uh, that have most reacted sort of negatively to your work?
1: Right. So I use the term strategy much like a business strategy. Right. Uh, similar to how, because that's, again, that's my consulting background. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, so essentially... Um, you know, I divide evangelicals into three primary different strategies that people had. Two of them originating in the positive world and one originating in the neutral world. The positive world ones were uh, culture war and secret sensitivity, and the neutral world one was um, cultural engagement. And so uh, culture war was, again, the religious right as we know it. Basically, these people saw what was happening in the sexual revolution, Roe versus Wade, many other things. And they didn't like the way the culture was going. And so they decided to mobilize politically to try to you know, take back the culture. We're gonna fight. We speak for the quote unquote moral majority to use the name of Jerry Falwell's group. That's such a positive world name. Now it may not have even been true then. The Christians were the moral majority, but like Nixon's silent majority, it was at least a plausible claim. And so, um, you know, originally evangelicals were Democrats. You know, Jimmy Carter was the first evangelical president. I mean, worries about a Bible thumper in the Oval Office, that was the worry about Jimmy Carter. Yeah, people forget that. Uh, but really in the 80s, this group sort of realigned into the Republican Party. There's a lot of history there, I think is very interesting, that I think is underexplored. And uh, But nevertheless, they became Republicans, are still the largest, most Boyle block. And so we could think of, you know, Jerry Falwell, Pat Roberts, and all those people. And this strain continues to the present day. And I think it's notable. A lot of these guys were located in places like Lynchburg, Virginia, sort of cultural backwaters. They're more rural. Um, they were reaching people through their own sort of televangelist shows, their own TV networks, their own newsletters, things of that nature. They sort of had a, a marketing-driven style, you know, populist highly confrontational, and they actually, by the way, these guys liked it when they called it a positive world, but they wanted to be attacked. I mean, if you were Pat Robertson and the New York Times wrote a hit job on you, you'd fundraise off that for a week, right? So they were sort of anti-fragile, if you will, to pick a a, a word that people use today. The seeker-sensitive saw the same period of decline. People aren't going to church. And so they said, well, why don't we design a church that people will actually go to? And that was Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. That was Rick Warren at Saddleback. Bill Hybels, the story is he went door to door in suburban Chicago, asking people, well, why don't you go to church? And according to him, they gave him an earful. And he's like, "Okay, (laughs) great. We don't want all this denominational claptrap. We don't want any stodgy hymns and choir robes. We don't want these, you know, you know, buildings. We want a nice welcoming thing. It's going to be informal, contemporary music, very topical, therapeutic and it was enormously successful with especially the baby boomer suburbanites that were moving out there at the time. And um, again, that this is still around today. I think the the today's non-denominational suburban mecca church is basically the inheritor uh, of this. And then in the again, the 90s, we saw the development of the cultural engagement strategy. Uh, it through guys, people like Tim Keller, I think at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, was there. And you can think of this, I think, a couple of ways. One is as a seeker sensitivity for the cities, you know. Whereas Bill Hybels was reaching the suburbs, Rick Warren's reaching the suburbs, Tim Keller's reaching the city, reaching this new urban gentrified population that's streaming back into the urban centers in the '90s as crime went down and cities came back. A second way to think about them is basically the opposite of the culture war people. Rather than fighting with people all the time. Why don't we sit down and talk to people, you know, sit down and take advantage of this pluralistic public square to have a conversation. And we believe that we can articulate Christian truth in a compelling manner to these people and maybe win some people over. And certainly in the 90s, it was enormously successful for Tim Keller. There were large numbers of new converts um, being made uh, Redeemer in, in the 1990s and into the 2000s. And so those were sort of the three strategies. Again, you can think of them as, um, there's not just strategies, they're kind of different demographics. You can think Mm -hmm. of them a little bit as as rural, suburban, and urban evangelicals. Mm -hmm. You know, the culture war people were more fundamentalist, more Pentecostal. The seeker sensitives and cultural engagers were more neo-evangelical. There's class differences as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Pat Robertson himself might've been from an elite background. Most of his followers were sort of middle class to lower middle class, non-college educated type people, Um, you know, again, suburban middle class to professional class at the megachurches and then kind of aspiring elites, upper middle class and these things. There's a lot of differences between these groups. You know, evangelicalism was sort of never a coherent movement in in that respect. And it was really one that came to the fore sort of as the main lines receded and were unable Mm -hmm. to adapt. As we entered this period of decline in the positive world, the main lines really started losing people and never figured out Mm. how to to do it. The more purely fundamentalist people also couldn't figure it out. They couldn't escape their ghettos. But again, this more neo-evangelical movement that had come out of people like Billy Graham and the 40 it built, and it was able to adapt. It was Mm. much more adaptable to changing times and changing consumer taste. And I think that's the source of greatest optimism about its future, and this is something a movement that's been very adaptable. You know, cities come back. A guy like Tim Keller goes in there and they figures it out. So we've had essentially religious entrepreneurs, hmm. you know, who figured this thing out. Uh, and so that's that's sort of these these three different groups. Now, what about the negative world? Well, we haven't seen any any strategies for the negative world really emerge yet. The one that was laid out was Rod Dreher's Benedict option in his 2017 book. And evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict option. You know, the uh, Christianity today invited four people to give their thoughts on the book, and all four of them criticized it. Basically, I think Rod was a little taken aback by that by the negative response his book got. I mean, apparently Pope Francis didn't like a lot of people didn't like it, his book. Wow. And I do think, you know, Rod Dreher is Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic. He doesn't understand the first thing about evangelicalism. He'd tell you that himself. And like, F- naming your book after your th- your thesis after the founder of Catholic monasticism and actually using monasteries in the book as a model really, I think, was somewhat alienating to evangelicals. But there was, I think some of it was just a, a kind of a, a sense of denial. It was really that. It was bigger than that. They didn't want to admit we're in the negative world. And his second book, Live Not by Lies, um, did way better. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a sequel. And I think now today, nobody could deny uh, things are different. And so the timing was not right for him. But again, where are the, where's the evangelical? You don't like the Benedict option. What is your strategy? Yeah. We don't really so, have one. We don't really have one. And that's really the source, in my view, of the turmoil within evangelicalism. All these other three strategies are still around, but they're sort of flailing to adapt. A lot of them are morphing and deforming and coming into conflict with each other. And so I think yeah. a lot of what we see is the pressures of the negative world bearing down on these three strategies.
0: So yeah, so the, the I guess you lay out in the book, the, the problem with, say, you know, they're all three have different problems with them, why they don't, aren't um, suited for the negative world. You know, they don't quite work in the negative world. The moral, the the culture war strategy is because it relies upon you having enough of an army to wage war, you know, basically, it's like you have to be a moral majority in order to, you know, take back the culture, you know, in order to fight the culture. But if you're, you know, if you're the smaller army, if you're the, you know, insurgent, if you're, if you're not, you know, it's you're not, you know, the allies versus the axis. Instead, you're, you know, in you know you're the in Vietnam, you know, fighting the U.S. You have to have a different strategy. It's not going to, you know, waging that kind of war is not going to work, and and so. And that's what you find is that the culture warriors, they're kind of a- always kind of on the retreat um, of or is like, oh, we've we fought the fight against, you know, against homosexuality. Well, uh, as a, as our next one, we're going to fight against transgenderism, which is just, you know, it's, it's just another retreat further down that that line. Um, <clears throat> the secret sensitive uh strategy as you lay out in the book but does reason that doesn't work because there's not enough people seeking to actually (laughs) go after the church and this in their in you know secret sense it was like okay people would like to go to church we just have to make it as easy as possible not do anything to turn them off whereas culture any cultural engagement and you correct me if i'm you know misrepresenting anything that you're that you're saying but the culture engagement what that relied upon is like you said we're another business in the marketplace. Yeah. That's you know, where we have a seat at the table, we have equal opportunities to have a seat at the table to make our case, to market our case. And yeah. um, and as long as we don't, you know, break any rules, like don't you know, uh, you know, break any laws, it's like you know, we, we can, you know, have space in the public square in order to make our case. And you know, as and in this case, it was like as long as we're not mean. You know, as long as we don't, you know, act like culture warriors, then we will, you know, be, um, then will, then then we can have the opportunity, uh, seat at the table to share the gospel. And in fact, the best way to share the gospel and the more most Christian way to share the gospel is to make sure that you're in the world, uh, having a seat at the table to um to share the gospel to those people. Because how can you you know share the gospel with those people unless you have a seat at the table there? And the reason that you layout that you think that that strategy doesn't really work anymore is because you really don't get a seat at the table. And if you do have a seat at the table, anytime that you witness in a way that's countercultural to whatever prevailing ideas or ideologies are there, then you will be exited from that seat. And so there's no opportunity to say, okay, since I have a seat at the table, I can make my case. Once you make a contrary case, you're going to be kicked out, or at the very least, there's a high probability that you will. And so that strategy doesn't um, really, really work anymore in a uh, in a scenario of the negative world. But the people in the cultural engagement space don't believe that. They don't believe that. The reason that they've been ha- pushing back on is they say, no, we can still do this, and this will still work, and this is still the right way to go about it. I was reading um, your book, uh, The Great Dechurching, as I talked about, and one of the things that I found interesting about that book is they're saying, okay, why are people leaving church and what can we do to bring them back? That's sort of, you know, that's that's the the subtitle of the book. And one of the things, basically what they say is that the reason people are leaving church is that they have other priorities and they're, um, and we haven't been listening to them well enough in order to, you know, with their concerns, we have we've been too much like the culture warriors and not enough like the secret sensitive people. I mean, not as we not like the cultural engager people, and we just need to do a better job of being the cultural engagement people, and then people will start coming back. And the and what's interesting, so I say that to bring out that there is in the culture engagements crowd, you know, according to your framework, there seems to be a resistance to the idea that we've entered a world where that strategy isn't going to work anymore. Does that is that sound like an, a, a, an accurate way of describing the pushback you've gotten?
1: Well, I, I think there's, I think there's some of that. I, you know, one of the things that I do believe that they took away from my piece is, um, well, what, I don't think they appreciated that. I said, look, you know, the negative world is an existential threat to their model. And many of these people are drifting towards essentially a mainline direction. And I think I stand by staying those things. But I think they also sort of thought that I'm essentially validating a culture war, more of a culture yeah. war approach, which I think the culture war approach is equally as obsolete yeah. compared, compared to uh, the cultural engagement one. As you said, you know, if you want to fight a culture war, it's going to have to be some sort of an insurgency because you're not meeting your enemy head to head on the face of the on the battlefield anymore. And so, I did try in the book um, to to do that um, to do that a little bit. Um, but yeah, th- th- there is this, and I, and I think the other thing with that is, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump really did play a role, I think, in this polarization because Donald Trump got eighty percent of the uh, evangelical vote. And so you're sitting here, you know, in San Francisco, Boston, Washington, New York, Chicago, you're one of these cultural engagement evangelicals. You're in Charlottesville, Virginia, or you're in New Haven, you're something like that. And you're trying to convince people that, um, you know, evangelicals are, you know, we're not bad people, we're not horrible people. And then Donald Trump gets elected president with like 80% evangelical support, who are like the core We're voters of Trump. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we don't. um, So what do you do? Like, because they're like, that does not I don't those are not my values. So they, you know, they kind of became, you know, very, very loud, very, very loud anti-Trump. And I and I think part of it is there is a desire to put clear daylight between them and Donald Trump and the people who support him. Which I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Right? If you are not a Donald Trump supporter, if you do not like Donald Trump, then you do want to make clear, you know, that's not what I support. Um, and, you know, and so, and I think what they've they've taken the next step of that. Some of them have have said those evangelicals over there are not our people either. They're fundamentally something different than what we are. Uh, which I don't think is a necessary step but it's it's one that they took so I think you really have to you can't like put aside you know the impact that sort of Donald Trump had on some of these people uh in in terms of in terms of that and it's not just you know and then there's kind of what I call idiosyncratic cases as mm-hmm. well so you take a guy like Eric Metaxas if you'd gone to to, uh, if you'd gone back to 2000, you know, January 1, 2015, I probably would have used Eric Metaxas as an example of a cultural engager. Well, now he's like way deep down the Trump rabbit hole uh, kind of thing. And so, and then similarly, a guy like David French, I would have said, well, there's a culture war guy for you. Well, now David French is way over here in the New York Times bashing those people every single day. So it's not necessarily predictable uh how all these things um turned out um and so um again i do think though um, you know i think that the culture engagement people uh, certainly like to view themselves as the sages of the age mm-hmm. right if you if you go you go to the gospel coalition to find out the most cutting edge way to succeed in doing ministry in the culture today all of that stuff. And like, if, you know, if kind of the negative world thesis is true and the world has changed a lot, then those people don't necessarily have the answers. Their old answers aren't necessarily today's answers. And oh, by the way, we definitely can look and see that, you know, Gospel Coalition 2018 and Gospel Coalition 2023 are very different than Gospel Coalition 2013 they've changed a lot. They are not just doing what they were doing back in the day. You know, for example, they, they went hard on what I would call the woke stance on race. Uh, that was a hard pivot um, during this sort of great awakening. They glommed onto it. They got pulled that way by the culture. So they are not just doing what they were doing before. Right. I think you would find, you know, a lot of these social justice sermons that I would hear in some of these churches are not the sermons that would have been given in 2007, you know, when Tim Keller's Reason for God came out.
0: Yeah. No. So one of the cases that you make is that you know, as you know, the culture warriors continue to slide into irrelevancy as their the army for their war gets smaller and smaller, and as you know, secret sensitive again just doesn't really have a voice at the table. The cultural engagers are tending to, in order to like find common space, you know, with the common culture. Um, you know, again, in a at a in a, a a usual redeemer sermon, it would basically be like, you know, here's the things you already believe here's how christianity actually answers those better than your cultural answers are and you know so it starts out with the common the things we have in common as the culture moves further and further away from christianity in order to say here's our common cause you know you have to keep sort of moving the common cause further and further along and so you describe the culture engagers are starting to do a bit more of uh syncretism it's like okay yeah
1: yeah, it's like here. You know, here's how what you already believe is what Christianity believes. Sure. Yeah. I think is, is what happened. Um, so, so now, so that now the other thing I would say is you know back on the back on the culture war people, you know I like this distinction in the book. We have to distinguish between sort of culture war Christianity, conservative Christianity, and the Republican Party, hmm. because the fact that the culture war is, the army is shrinking does not mean that the Republican Party is doomed, but the Republican Party is essentially becoming a, a post-Christian right party sure. in, in Grace you sense. Know, and as somebody who used to work for Conservatism, Inc., major foundation, I can tell you, conservative elites are by and large, you know, culturally blue. They yeah. are, they like, they all live in big cities. Almost all of them live in like New York or Washington. They like that milieu. They're mm-hmm. mostly pretty socially liberal on every position. They're not necessarily big fans of evangelicalism, but they've sort of been forced to like play nice with them a little bit because they were so important. So a lot of the elites were never that down, mm-hmm. like social conservatism puts you that way. And um, then, you know, you've got like the, the donor class who are concerned about their their own kind of parochial concerns. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, the Trump followers. I mean, there's been a couple articles about this and it, it, it's true. And it is that, you know, the the quote-unquote evangelicals who are the most passionate trump supporters are people who often don't go to church they're it's evangelicals as a cultural identifier yeah more than a religious identifier and if you read jd vance's book Hill elegy he talks about these people like yeah. like his family most of them were like quote-unquote christians talked about God, but they didn't go to church they weren't living christian lives it was sort of just some background to their you yeah. know sort of sense of identity or identity and so we see that we also see the rise of these, so you know, kind of more dissident right, uh, you know, younger people. You know, you could think of people like Andrew Tate and his army of followers, representing something of kind of or, or barstool sports. And you know, people talked about South, South Park Republicans and things like that. But these are got more youth demographic, and they're not Christian and they don't believe in Christian morality in any way. So what we see is you go to Ohio, which is basically a red state now, you know, votes in favor of abortion, votes in favor of pot legalization. Right. So like the the median Republican in a red state now probably supports pot legalization, stuff like that. And, yeah. You know, and that's why, like, you know, when in, in Indiana, you know, when we first put in a lottery, like the Methodist Church and people like that opposed it. Well, like now there's like you don't hear about gambling anymore. So, like, so it's essentially it's essentially a post-Christian right. Now, there are evangel plenty of evangelicals supporting Donald Trump, church going evangelical, sure. you know, but there are like a shrinking share of that pie. And they, in essence, get um hard. They get the blame for Trump, even though you know Trump couldn't win without them. This to be clear. Republicans really can't win without evangelical votes. But this is an you know an increasingly smaller share. And uh, this uh uh of uh, YouTuber Paul Vanderclay, he's a pastor of the Christian Reformed Church. He did a rip on one of my uh posts where I talked about um you know, if you, look at, uh, if you look at America, if you look at um, even conservatives make, I mean, evangelicals are not running the show, right? There are no evangelicals in the Supreme Court. There's only one Protestant of any variety. And he's in a, an Episcopalian co- convert, Neil Gorsuch. And yet all of this stuff is about Christian nationalism. <laughs> when, I mean, the, you know, the head of AEI is not a, you know, it's not an evangelical. The head yeah. of Heritage is not an evangelical. Most people are like, by and large you know it's like evangelicals and are getting the blame mm-hmm. right for uh movements and things that they are essentially foot soldiers in at best sure and so I do think I do think there's something there but I think we need to distinguish and maybe clearly distinguish between the prospects for Republican electoral mm-hmm. success yeah. which are not necessarily bad could could yeah. be bad not necessarily bad and sort of evangelical concerns, which yeah. that prognosis is this group, this group is definitely shrinking in a sense, but they had hitched their wagon. Yeah. They've continued to hitch their wagon to this sort of Trumpist populist Republican movement that increasingly doesn't represent their values. And then that's why they get attacked by the other. I mean, you're a hypocrite. You're yeah. a hypocrite because you're, you've are you attached yourself to this movement that doesn't and, and, have, and have your values. And there is a sense in which they did. And part of the negative world, part of the reality of the negative world is there's not going to be anybody to vote for. That mm. does reflect your values. You can't even pretend to be a values voter
0: in a sense. So that's now, you know, we, so we talked about, you know, why the fact that we're in a negative world and why the, maybe the strategies that worked, you know, in a pre-negative world, although, you know, you kind of talk about how much they worked given the fact that they didn't prevent us from getting into a negative world. But that's a whole other discussion. You know, when now, if we are in the negative world and those old strategies are not going to work, you know, then the question becomes, okay, well, then what do we do now? That's where you spend the bulk of your book, which is actually laying out strategies of how do you, you know, how do you be um, sort of mentally shift yourself to saying, okay, I'm no longer a majority or a, you know, or an equal opportunity—you know—part of the the pie. You know, or half of the country. I'm not the majority of the country. I'm not half the country. I am a countercultural um, large minority in the country. You know, how do we change our ways of um, interacting the world, both mentally and practically? Um, as we do that, and so a lot, most of your book is laying out tr- vision casting, probably the right mm-hmm. word to say. Um, how to think about doing that, and then some practical ideas for doing that. So in the time that we have left, if you could kind of, um I'll ask like one more follow-up question to get specific about one thing that I'm really interested in, but it's sort of, if you were to give sort of broad strokes about some of the things that you're advising people, somebody who's, you know, listening to this now, who maybe hasn't read your book, but is really interested in this and wants to know, you know, kind of, if your book is kind of, will, will help them with this and wants to get an idea of how to vision cast themselves, um, responding to this world, what's sort of your your general and some of your ideas of of what that looks like?
1: Sure. So I give uh, uh, ideas across three dimensions. What I call personal, institutional, and missional. So the personal is you know how you and your family should live, right? Institutional is like how should our churches, our parachurch ministries, maybe our Christian-owned businesses, how should you respond? And then the missional is how should we do mission? How should we be engaged in the world? around us at large you know how to engage in the, the great commission of, of seeking converts but also how to um how to politically engage culturally engage all those things and the main theme that I I, I again there's a couple themes I would I would hit one of them is exploration. The idea being, you know, we're not in a situation like Bill Hybels was in, where he can, like, I'll go knock on doors, I'll do some market research, I'll find out where the existing offerings aren't really serving the market, I'll create my, that's like a classic business plan, business strategy approach. And if you've ever seen Bill Hybels, he's very much like a CEO, I mean, he's super impressive, strategic thinking CEO, business operator type person. We're not going to be able to do that. We're in a more fundamentally different era, rapidly changing world. And to me, the analogy I use is, you know, the uh, the, the Hebrews going from the desert into the promised land. They're going into the unknown. Uh, and there's the line in Joshua that, you know, they say, you, you should follow the ark because you have not been this way before. We haven't been this way before. So I think we have to adopt, you know, an exploration mindset, much more like the Lewis and Clark expedition, where you try to prepare, make all stakes in the ground, all this stuff but we got we to gotta be realizing, you know, we're not going to be able to make a 10-point plan. Okay. You may recall even like a very famous 2010 speech Tim Keller gave at the Lausanne conference where he's like, here's 10 things about the city. Let I me mean, talk about the city. Here's the plan. How's how we're going to reach the city? Here's how we're going to do it. We're not going to be making any 10-point plans. Yeah. Now, Some people will make 10-point plans and some of them may even work. But I think we're in, we're in like a, a very much more unknown. So we have this, this posture of sort of walking by faith, not by sight much more exploration open minded you know realizing you know more 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 uh, you know more faith in god in a sense there a second one and and i um uh this is actually a suggestion from my editor to frame it this way so i'm indebted to him is um it's the same publisher that did tim keller's uh, center church book which is my mm. favorite book by tim keller mm. and in center church he comes up with basically four different styles of church that are his variations on H. Richard Niebuhr's Christ and culture model. So he called them transformation, relevance, counterculture, and two kingdoms. So transformation, he sees the culture war people's transformation. They wanna transform the world through politics. He would see the secret sensitives as relevant. They wanna be relevant people, right? Two kingdoms would be like the Lutherans, put them aside. Uh, counterculture would be something like the Amish, or like the new monastic movement, the Neo-Anabaptist movement might follow, fall into this, which is sort of a, a group that doesn't necessarily fall cleanly into my, my model. There's cool groups that don't necessarily fall cleanly into there. I, I classified cultural engagement primarily as a relevant strategy with um, sort of transformationalist aspirations. And what I basically say is in the negative world, we need to be less focused on transformation and relevance and more focused on being a counterculture. Mm-hmm. That is to say, like any minority group, we have to adopt a minority mindset and realize that we have to self-consciously and intentionally and explicitly steward and build up the strength and health of our own community. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what we've, I think, been very weak at. Mm-hmm. As an, I mean, every evangelical church. You know, Bill Hybels did a famous survey at Willow Creek, and people felt like they weren't being discipled. It's like, what do we have to do? Everybody knows this is a weak spot. And I, I maybe I make the case for some of this more weakly than I could have in the book because I always say I'm not a theologian or a Bible teacher. So I don't really like to talk about it in terms of theology because it's not an expert. I don't want to put that hat on. But sure. if if I were to adopt a more kind of theological perspective, I go back to, you know, the Pauline letters of the New Testament. You know, Paul is basically, you know, I think concerned with a couple of things. One is conversion, transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. Mm-hmm. Secondly, is the church is a sort of new form of community, mm-hmm. a new kind of community that is supposed to be living together. In a new way, sort of representing this expanding kingdom of God, and it has an outworking into the world. But he's primarily concerned about the church. I mean, if you go back to like First Corinthians, when he's writing about this guy, like you know, sleeping with his mother-in-law, he's something. He's basically like, kick that guy out. He's like, those who are outside the church, God judges. You take care of business inside the church. If you look at Paul's commands, he gives tons and tons and tons of commands. Okay. Most of his commands have very little to do with the world outside the church. Mm -hmm. And those that do are about accommodating oneself to it with the least pay, you know, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Be in subjection to the governing authority. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. He wasn't, they weren't trying to rock the boat. Now, he wasn't a coward. He wasn't afraid of confrontation or controversy. Like trouble found him. But he wasn't trying to overturn the Roman system or anything of that nature. And so I'm not saying we should do exactly that, but I do think there's a sense in which we need to be much more focused on how the church is operating because our churches, our communities are weak. We are way too conformed to the world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this is where the negative world provides opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because if you go back to the 50s, if Christianity is the norm and everybody's basically expected to go to church, And the churches basically have to have a seat in the pews for everybody. You can't set the bar for being a church member too high in the 1950s because it's sort of a baseline condition of citizenship. Well, now that we don't have to accommodate (laughs) everyone, basically recognizing that you live in this minority world, we we can say, look, there is a very high calling on what it means to be a Christian. And while anybody can come to the gospel, once you are a Christian, here is how we are expected to live in setting a standard for how one should conduct themselves in the church. I think there's opportunities to live, you know, a more fuller, richer and authentic Christian life by worrying about much more about the strength of the church and the life of the church at, than about transforming the world. <laughs> that's, what I would, that's what I would say. Or trying to be relevant to every single person. Sure, and yeah. again, uh, you know, my last point, like, Jesus routinely said he challenged people. He's like, "Oh, you want to come to me? Well, why don't you give away all your stuff and then come back and talk to me or whatever." Like, he would say stuff like that. He wasn't trying to lower the bar; he was often raising the bar. And so, I think that there is that sense in which we can think differently about church today.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things that are really interesting. Again, in the the Great G Churching book, one of the things they do, they also talk about the fact that, you know, the church has to start having a minority mindset, like we're going to be a minority. And there are some good things about that, sort of, as you said. But one of the things I think that I felt lacking from there is they admitted that one of the problems that faces the church is that people are discipled, to use the evangelical term, you know, by the world six days a week and by the church one day a week. Mm-hmm. And yet they didn't really have any ideas for how do we solve that problem? And so, mm-hmm. one of the things you talk about that is like, look, we have to do a lot better about making sure that, you know, we're, you know, the our church people are being counter catechized to the world. And you give examples of kind of like, you know, the in Jewish communities who are extremely, you know, influential minority communities in, in America, they are very specifically making sure that their children are not only you know know about hanukkah but they also know about christmas and why we don't celebrate it and they're actually very good at saying look we're not the majority culture but what we're doing is really important and in fact is you know is is more true we believe than what they believe and so they're really good at actually making sure that they're um that the, they're not absorbed into the larger community right. which um evangelicals have not you know historically been as good at doing and in fact what, you know, one of the things I talk I talk to people all the time about you know the, about, you know, people there's a huge thing Christianity is saying about, we need to have a, you know, a revival, and stuff like that. It's like, I don't, I, we don't need a revival. All we need is to fix the church retention problem, because otherwise then Christians will simply, not put it crudely, but just outbreed secularism. Yeah. If we could just prevent the kids that are being born into these churches from leaving, then secularism would be, you know, would end within a couple generations. You know, the problem is that for some reason, what's out there is more attractive than what's in here. And so your model of saying we have to focus on doing a better job of doing that is really compelling. Also, the things you talk about—look, you kind of have to, in the negative world, give up hope that um, by being the right kind of Christian, people will be attracted to you. It's like no, you're going to be—you're going to be the counterculture. You're going to be the counterculture, and whatever kind of attraction people are going to have to you is going to be as a counterculture not you know kind of fading into the background so that's the relevance model like fading into the background um you know and so you know you also talk about you know again you like okay if you can get cancelled at any time like how are you protecting yourself from that in in various ways making sure you're anti-fragile and all those kind of ways so you give a lot of those kind of really um really good ideas so if anyone who's interested about who if, if there's anybody who has um You know, is persuaded by this model, persuaded by this model thing that feels relevant to you, resonates with you. Um, I definitely encourage you to um, to take a look at uh, at Aaron Ren's book to uh, for some of the ideas he gets for both vision casting, but then also um, unpacking some some potential tangible strategies for for doing it. Although you know, acknowledging as you said that we're really an unknown territory, and so. Um, that, but I guess one of the things, the one thing I think that I think is from this book that again for me, and then I'll let you have the last word. That I think um, is that, especially the exploration strategy. You know, that it, again, the two things that really re- jumped out at me were one, doing better at counter catechesis or counter discipleship, and focusing on that. But then also, um, uh, also the fact that showing a bit more grace towards Christians who are um, trying different strategies. You know, again, there's. There's a way you can say, like saying, okay, maybe you're just not being a Christian, but there's other aspects of which, you know, a lot of times what Christians tend to do is they tend to blame other Christians for the fact that their their mission isn't working, their evangelism isn't working. You know, cultural warriors will do that to the cultural engagers, saying, well, it's because of your compromise that my evangelization isn't working and cultural engagers will do it to the cultural warriors. So, well, it's because of your, you know, you voted for Donald Trump and that's why my friends won't become Christians. And... You know, one of the things I think your model does really interesting is and talking about this exploration is that, you know, you really have to show a little bit more grace towards Christians who are trying other strategies because really nobody knows what they're doing because this is a new world. Um, So if there's anything that you would either responding to that or building off of that or anything you would like to leave people with um, before we um, before we uh, end, um, what would that be?
1: Yeah, well, I think those are all great points. I think there's, you know, that is what I I try to do. And I think the key is I'm giving you like ideas and like themes to think about, but it's not a 10 point plan. It's not, here's what you need to do. You, you know, as a, as a, you know, person in the pews, as a pastor, as some kind of leader, you're going to have to figure out how you and your specific circumstances move forward. But again, I hope to give you some tools To help doing that, you know, and also some some very specific ideas, but also to think about like, okay, great. Here's here's my toolkit that I'm taking on my Lewis and Clark expedition to explore this negative world to kind of understand and navigate the landscape. And, um, you know, I I don't think I don't think that um, we can we that we should we shouldn't criticize other people we think are in the wrong. But this idea that there's only going to be like one way to do it we we got to realize some people are going to come to different opinions when it comes to political engagement. And so I don't think that we should we should stop repping our position. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I think we ought to be realized like, hey, is this person just to have a good faith, different answer than I do? And I think we need to be a little bit more open on that, not expect everybody to be a tribal loyalist, mm-hmm. like every single litmus test point.
0: Yeah. And also say, I mean, again, one of the things I really appreciated you talking about book is you come right out of the gate and basically just say, is your first agenda following Jesus? And yeah. what cost are you willing to pay for that? You know, is it if you're in the negative world it's like, well, guess what? That's what Jesus said is sometimes you're going to have and is your greatest loyalty to, you know, culture warring? Is it to cultural relevance? Is it to whatever or is it to. Following Jesus, and are you willing to pay the cost to do that? That's something. Just I know that you want to avoid as much as possible being the theologian, being the the preacher, because that's not your forte. Right. But I think that that's something that often gets lost in these discussions. So I'm right. glad that you you put that first and foremost, even though yeah. may, though not put it majority or last. Say, hey, that right. should be where our, our our guiding light is.
1: Right. So yeah, Christianity is not a business, and so this is not like a presentation to the CEO. We are. You know, I think I did have to put in that there, like, look, we, we got to be we got to be all in on, you know, what we believe to be true theologically and what we believe to be true about God and what he has said. That's the number one thing. If we're not doing that, we might as well just all go home. Yeah. doesn't mean everybody's going to agree, but like it's going to be more important than ever to be more committed to that point. And, uh, you know, I use the example from the Sermon on the Mount. What does it end with? the person who built their house on the rock and the person who built their house on the sand. Who's the person who built their house on the rock? The person who heard Jesus's words and put them into practice. You gotta actually hear this stuff and do it and live it, not just admire it or say, well, I'm not gonna do that. That could, because we haven't had any floods in our lives yet to date, and we may never have a flood, but we can see the storm clouds on the horizon. And It's like Warren Buffett said, It's not till the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming naked. And so if we want to survive the test of our faith, when that, you know, if that comes, then we should be doing the things that Jesus actually said to do to survive the flood, which is be all in.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been a great, great interview. I think that people will have a lot, uh, get a lot out of it and be Give, have good reason to uh, think about this. Um, so if um, people want to get your book, um, people want to engage more with your work, where would you send them?
1: You can buy a life in the negative world wherever fine books are sold. It should be available anywhere. And um, all of my work, the best place to find it is com. Sign up for my free newsletter Uh, And that way you can keep up with everything I'm doing, because I'm going to continue developing these themes and be putting out more ideas. This insurgency idea is one of them that I've got that I haven't rolled out yet. It's not in the book. So there's a lot of stuff coming that's not going to be in the book. So by all means, sign up.
0: Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, sir.
1: Thank you.